0: This is the gospel according to Mark. It says, In the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins.
1: Good to see you guys. Uh, My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, as Josh said, we're beginning this series in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, We actually taught through the Gospel of Mark, um, uh, the very first series we did as a church six years ago, uh, but we did it in about 12 weeks, and we skipped some parts and just took really huge chunks and went fast. This one's going to take us about a year, and uh, so we're going to kind of hunker down and, and really get to know Jesus. Um, I'm excited about it. You know, there was someone in one of our Start Here classes recently who said, hey, I'm, I'm just starting to figure out how to read the Bible. Where should I begin? When I've never read it before. Where, where should I start? And I told her, I said, you should start in the Gospel of Mark. And uh, there's a couple reasons. Mark's the shortest gospel. Um, it's real action-packed. It's real kind of... Uh, you know, not, not a lot of confusing stuff, though there's, there's some. We'll actually bump into a little bit of it today. Um, but it's pretty straightforward, and it's short. And in a couple hours, you can get a really um, good picture of who Jesus Christ is. And the reason I told her that that's where you should start is because, really, Christianity centers on Jesus Christ. Christianity is about Jesus. It's not mostly about an ethic that we should seek to live out. It's not about advice that we should follow. It's about news. And the news of Christianity, the news of the gospel is the news about Jesus Christ. And so if you're new to the Bible, you should read Mark. If you're here today and you're feeling like, man, I'm not too familiar with all this Christian stuff yet, you're in a great place. Uh, Because you'll get to know uh, this week and over the coming weeks, if you continue to join us, you'll get to know who Jesus is. Now, if you are familiar with Christ and maybe you've been a Christian for a while, this is also really important for you because for those who have been around Christianity for a long time, you know this. It's really easy to sort of lose track of what's most important. There's an amazing place in 2 Timothy 2 where the Apostle Paul, who wrote a lot of the New Testament, is writing his final letter to his protege Timothy and in chapter two he tells him something amazing Timothy's a pastor of the church in Ephesus at this point and Paul tells him remember Jesus Christ and you go why would he have to say that like Paul you mentored the guy you're an apostle he's a pastor like remember Jesus duh and yet that's what we need to do isn't it We need to remember Jesus Christ, and so that's what we're going to do. Maybe it'll be discovering Jesus for you. Maybe it'll be remembering Jesus for others, but that's what we're going to do as we get into this book of Mark. Now here's kind of where we're going to go today. I want to basically uh, introduce to you Mark and his gospel. We'll talk a little bit about who Mark is and what's kind of interesting about this book. And then we're going to get into the passage that Josh read. So we'll look at Mark and his gospel. We'll look at John, a bold witness, and we'll look at Jesus, a beloved son. So that's where we're going to head. So Mark and his gospel, first of all, just some stuff that you want to know as we read through this. You know, we don't just sort of tear open the Bible and start. We, we kind of have to go, what's the background? What's happening here? And so first, you may want to know a little bit about Mark who's Mark what, what is he all about well the first thing you want to know about Mark is that Mark's uh, mother uh, owned the house that was probably used as the upper room uh, now if you're not as familiar with with the Bible stories some of this won't be as familiar to you but the upper room was the place where uh, the disciples and Jesus had his last supper It was also the place where they were gathered to pray at the beginning of Acts when the Holy Spirit came down on them. In Acts 12, it's the place where everyone is gathered to pray when Peter is in prison. And uh, almost certainly this house belonged to Mark's mom. Now the reason that's significant is because what that means is that Mark was around a lot of the stuff that he's going to write about. He was familiar with a lot of the people and the characters involved in these stories. This is not just some random guy who tried to do some research. Mark was there, and he he had easy access to the people that that were around this kind of stuff. Mark also was the cousin of Barnabas. Barnabas traveled around on Paul's first missionary journey, was a huge leader in the early church. It's possible that Mark was related, maybe a distant cousin of some sort, to Peter. Um, He did travel in his uh, ministry later with Paul and with Peter. In fact, there's this really famous uh, place in in the book of Acts where uh, Paul and Barnabas are traveling along with Mark and Mark decides he doesn't want to continue on the journey and then Barnabas wants to take Mark again on a different trip and they decide they're going to split over it. There's kind of this big contention that relates to Mark. Uh, But in the end, uh, Mark is really valuable to Paul and to Peter. He's this right-hand guy to a lot of these apostles, a lot of these key witnesses of Jesus. Eventually, in his life, he went to Alexandria in Egypt, he founded a number of churches there, he was martyred there, he was killed there for his faith, Uh, probably actually was from North Africa, and uh, some legends call him, this was his nickname, Saint Mark the Lionhearted, Saint Mark the Lionhearted. You see on this uh, icon of Mark, he's sitting there on top of a lion, and and the reason they say this is because legend says that uh, Mark at one point was thrown to the lions, and rather than devouring him, the, the lions slept at his feet. Mark the lion-hearted. What about Mark's gospel? What do do we need to know about Mark's gospel? Well, I've already said this. Mark's gospel is the briefest of the four gospel accounts. It was written to a Roman audience. Uh, Because it was written to a Roman audience, it doesn't have very many Old Testament quotes. And the places where it talks about sort of Jewish and Old Testament traditions, it usually explains it because it doesn't assume that, that the people knew about those traditions, which again is why I think it's helpful for us as Americans. We're not super familiar with Old Testament traditions. And so it's helpful that he explains it. Mark has the fewest percentage of any of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the fewest percentage of words of Jesus' teaching. So it's much more action. Only about 40% of the book is Jesus' words versus John is somewhere closer to 70%. It's action-packed. It's fast-paced. We'll see in this first chapter over and over that Mark will use the word immediately. Immediately this happened, and immediately that happened, and all these things that a number of the other writers really spend a lot of time explaining, Mark doesn't. He's just action-packed, kind of in your face, here's what happened, on to the next thing. And uh, and then a couple other things that you need to see. Uh, Mark was written in probably about 65 AD, which means that this book was written within 25 to 30 years of the events that it describes. That's important. Because that means when Mark wrote this, there were eyewitnesses to the things that he wrote about that could go, hey, that didn't happen that way. Or yes, that's exactly what took place. Right? This would be like describing the, the earthquake that happened in Phoenix in 1985. Most of us weren't here for that, but some people were here for that. They would know about it, and they'd be able to say, yes, I remember when that thing took place. Right? So, so that's, that's a little bit of what's going on. Some scholars, a lot of scholars say that the Gospel of Mark is really more like the Gospel of Peter, because Mark and Peter were so close, and Peter was one of Jesus' closest disciples. And uh, the places in, in the book of Mark, when Peter's involved, there's a lot of vivid details. And other places where Peter's not there, it's less detailed. And so some people call this sort of, uh, in quotes, the gospel of Peter. But it's written by, by Mark. And, and here's something that's really important before we get this. This is so key. You've got you've to understand this. To me, this is so eye-opening. Is that Mark is writing with an intentional point of view Mark has an agenda Mark is not just taking all this raw footage of Jesus life and laying it out rather he's taking the raw footage of Jesus life and he's organizing it into a documentary to make a point And the reason we have four different Gospels, it's as if God, you know, had a contest. And he said, here's what I want to do. I want to do a a documentary contest for filmmakers. And I'm going to give Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, I'm going to give them the same material. I'm going to give them the same raw footage. But what I want them each to do is to come up with a documentary film that they feel like is going to connect with the people that they're trying to reach and tell a specific and unique thing about Jesus that's important. Well, if that happened, what would happen? You wouldn't have the same exact four stories. You wouldn't have the same exact four films. You would have different films, all with the same footage, but arranged in slightly different ways to make different points. Does that make sense? So get this. Mark isn't making stuff up. Everything that happened here happened. But Mark is arranging his material in a particular way to make certain points. It's intentional. It's purposeful. So what's the point that Mark is trying to make? That's a big question as we think about the theme and the picture of this book. Well, he tells us in the very first verse, one of the big things he wants us to get is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Look at verse 1. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now here's what's amazing in the book of Mark, is Mark leads with that line, Jesus Christ is the Son of God, but then through the rest of the story, what we're going to see over this year is that the rest of the story, everyone in the story is trying to figure out who Jesus is. Mark has tipped his hand to the reader, we know, right? There's a bit of irony here, is we're let in on something that all the characters are not let in on. And so they're constantly trying to figure it out, and the disciples are confused, and the the religious leaders are confused, and the only people that kind of seem to know who he is are the demon-possessed people and the really sinful people. (laughs) They're the only people, the people that don't, that shouldn't understand who Jesus is do, and the people who should understand who he is don't. And there's all these even places where Jesus is healing blind people as a way of saying, hey, you don't see who I am yet. Until the very end, when Jesus Christ is crucified, and there a Roman soldier says, surely this man was the Son of God. And finally, boom, Mark's made his point. Do you see who he is? Jesus is the Son of God. And as as the reader, we're invited in to know what no one else in the story knows. And we're able to watch and to see who Jesus is. So, so that's a really important agenda that Mark has. Is he wants you to see Jesus Christ is the Son of God. We'll talk more in coming weeks about what that means. Another thing that is really important to Mark is, is that Christianity is entering in a path of sacrifice. Christianity is about sacrifice. It's about Jesus going toward the cross, And therefore, people who follow in the way of Jesus are also going toward the cross. They are going toward self-sacrifice. I love this graphic that our folks have come up with. And uh, there's a lot of really cool imagery here in this graphic. But one that I just want to point out to you is, see the two mountains? Mount on the left there, there's the light shining from it, representing the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus was up with his disciples and they saw his glory with God's voice booming down. And Jesus, symbolically here, is walking away from that mountain and toward the mountain of the cross, toward the mountain of sacrifice. He's holding in his hand a cup. And the cup in Mark 14 represents the, the suffering that he's going to endure on the cross. The life of Christianity, the life we'll see here in Mark, is a life headed toward Sacrifice. So that's Mark. That's Mark's gospel. That's a little bit big picture of what we're going to do, but we're going to dig in uh, right here and uh, and start working our way through this passage. So verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That word gospel literally means good news, right? We say Christianity isn't advice, it's news, and it's good news. Now this is an interesting word because this word was used in in Roman culture, and, and Mark would have very intentionally known this, that this word was used to announce good news of battles that were won or of new emperors that were created, that were kind of deified, right? There would be these announcements, these good newses. And what's interesting is in all of these announcements of battles, whenever this word was used, it was always a one of many, right? So here's a piece of good news. We won the battle. But here in verse 1, Mark is using this singular. He's saying the beginning of the good news, Not this is is one piece of a lot of good things that could happen. This is the good news. What is the good news? The good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Not that an emperor is godlike, but that Jesus is the Son of God. That's the good news. And then right away, he introduces us to this man named John. So let's look at that next. John, a bold witness. John was predicted in these verses that are in uh, verse 2 and 3. This is a quote, one of the few quotes from the Old Testament. It says, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. I've baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. A couple of things you want to see here about John. First, that John was predicted. Uh, Mark here quotes from Isaiah and a couple other places. Isaiah is the main one, which is why he says, as it's written in Isaiah. And he quotes, this was a prophecy that was 700 years before that a messenger would come to prepare the way of the Lord. It's interesting there see it in verse three the voice of one crying in the wilderness prepare the way of the lord make his paths straight the the, the scripture predicted someone's going to come who's going to get everything ready i was coaching soccer yesterday and uh, it's amazing I, i i go there on tuesday and thursday to the field at desert mountain park and it's just barren wasteland and then i show up on saturday and the lines are painted and the goals are up and there's flags flying and I go, who did this? Someone prepared the way. Right? Or think about this. When do the people at the gas station change the numbers? <laughs> Have you ever seen it? I think maybe one time in my whole life I've seen them. But, but, but the, the numbers change every day and sometimes throughout the day. And yet you never see them. Where are they? They're preparing the way for you to buy gas. But where are they? Now, unlike the soccer preparation and unlike the gas station preparation, which happens and no one really knows about it, John's preparation was visible. John's preparation was public. It was so public that it says that all of these people were coming out to see him. And John's role there was to prepare the way of the Lord. It's interesting in verse 3 there, the word Lord in that passage in Isaiah is a reference to God. So Mark, from the outset, in saying that Jesus is the Son of God and that John is preparing the way for him, is saying he is preparing the way for Jesus, who is God. From the beginning, a very bold claim. John was predicted, and, and he, he takes on this very prophetic nature. Do you see, in verse 6, he's, uh, Mark goes out of his way to mention what he's wearing. Clearly, what he's wearing is weird. And it's weird in our day, it would have been weird in that day. That's why Mark has to mention it. What's he wearing? He's wearing camel hair clothes, a belt around his waist, he's eating locusts and wild honey. And all the commentators said that one of the key indicators that John would have seen himself as this, playing this prophetic role of preparing the way of the Lord was this, this belt around his waist, that that was one of the key signs of a prophet. And uh, so in fact, uh, John sees himself that way, and he prepares the way for the Lord. Well, what was John's message John appeared, it says verse 4, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance. Repentance means to turn around, to reorient your whole life in a new way. And John is proclaiming that you would be baptized, that you would be immersed in water as a symbol of that turning around, of that, of that repentance. Now this is fascinating because uh, this, this kind of baptizing, this ritual cleansing wasn't a very common practice. The commentators kind of discussed this as you, as you study it. And, and what they saw is that sometimes people would go through kind of a ritual cleansing process if they were a Gentile converting to Judaism. But that was a cleansing process that they'd have to keep doing over and over. Occasionally in other sort of places people would kind of do this. But this is so unique that John becomes known as John the Baptist. John the Baptizer. Right? This is such a unique thing, this is such a new bold move of him to institute this idea of baptism that he gets named for it, right? So he's calling people out, saying, come, be immersed in the water, turn from your sins. This is all his way of preparing people for the Lord. In light of the fact that God is coming, turn around, think differently, get ready, get prepared. That's what he's doing. Now, what's amazing about this, as I said, sometimes Gentiles would go through some sort of cleansing process to become Jewish. But do you see what it says here in verse 5? It says, And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So what this is saying is that all people needed to repent. Not just the dirty people. Not just the sinful Gentile people, all people, even the Jews needed to go and needed to repent and needed to confess their sin. This applied to everyone. This baptizing, this calling people to repent. Then then you see the other part of John's message in verse 7. And he preached, saying, after me comes one, comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I've baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So John's message was not simply, hey, turn around and go through this cleansing ritual to symbolize that you're turning from your sin. But his message was, listen, I know you're all coming out to see me, and I know I'm dressed funny, and I know I'm, I got this new fancy title, John the Baptist, but this is all pointing to someone else who comes after me, And just so you know, I'm not even worthy of bending down and untying his sandals. This is a staggering thing. We miss this because we don't understand the cultural practice. But but the commentators all point out that this, this untying of the sandals was the lowest thing that a servant could do. In fact, there were laws in the Roman Empire that that in order to protect slaves' and servants' rights said, hey, you don't have to bend down and untie people's shoes. So even slaves didn't have to do it. It was so low. And John is saying, and later on we see that Jesus says about John that he's the greatest man that ever lived. No one has been born of a woman greater than John the Baptist, Jesus says. So the greatest man who's ever lived besides Jesus says, I'm not even worthy to do the very lowest thing imaginable. He's so great. That's not false humility. That's saying, I'm preparing the way, not just for a really interesting teacher, and not just for a man who's going to work miracles, but God himself is coming. And if he comes, get on your face. He says, verse 8, I've baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Again, all throughout the prophetic literature of the Old Testament, the only person when the Holy Spirit shows up, the Holy Spirit comes up because God has shown up. So again, John here is saying, I've prepared the way for Yahweh, for God himself, And I'm baptizing you in water. I'm immersing you in water. But the one who's coming after me is going to give you the Holy Spirit himself. God himself is going to bring God the Spirit to you. By the way, just, just to pause here, I hope that when you think about your life, if you're a Christian, and you think about what is it to be a witness, do you see what John's doing as a witness? He's saying, hey, don't look at me. Look at him. How often are we motivated in our lives to have people look at us? Look at what I did with my kids. Look at how I'm doing in my work. Look at the path that I'm on. Look at my new shoes. Look at my new this. Look at my new that. Great, fine. But when people are around you, do they get the sense that you're about saying, look at him. Look at Jesus. The only reason anything in my life is going pretty well is because of him. Look at him. That's what John was doing. He was a bold witness. He witnesses to Jesus. And that's what we want to camp on here for the remainder of our time. He witnesses to Jesus. It says, verse 9, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just something, again, to to point out that uh, we might miss because we don't understand the the dynamics of, of the first century land here, but Nazareth of Galilee, the reason Mark has to say Nazareth of Galilee rather than just saying Nazareth is because it was such a dumpy little town. No one even knew where it was. Scholars estimate that at this time, Nazareth was probably 500 people or less Right so it would be like saying it's globe in Arizona right cuz everyone else will go where's globe i don't even, that doesn't even, that doesn't even register me it's in Arizona it's in the phoenix area that kind of a thing so this is saying god himself has come and he's lived so humbly he he comes from this no name place and he shows up to be baptized and jesus then gets baptized it says those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. There's five things we need to see in this particular uh, section about Jesus getting baptized. The first one is this. Uh, this is evidence that it really happened because you wouldn't make this up here's why what was john's whole message repent turn around confess your sins and now jesus god is showing up to be baptized doesn't this create a problem why did jesus need to get baptized jesus didn't have any sin Right? This creates a very significant theological problem. All the commentators talk about it. And one of the things that I think it demonstrates is that this must have really happened. If you were making up a story about what Jesus said and did because you, were, you kind of had this false agenda that you were trying to prove he's God, but he really wasn't, he was just a good moral teacher, you wouldn't put this in there. This would create too much confusion. This would create too much problem. This would create people going, well, wait, why does he need to be baptized? I thought he was sinless. Why is it in there? Because it must have happened. And I think that's important to see, especially because you look at a passage like this and you look at the guy eating locusts and the camel's hair and, the, and what you're going to see in a little bit, the spirit coming down like a dove and it's very kind of like supernatural and honestly, it's a little weird. If you're new to the Bible, you're like, this, yeah, I, this doesn't sound like the world I live in. This sounds weird. Yeah, it does. But you can know that it really happened because people like Mark, they don't hide stuff that could potentially be confusing or challenging to understand. They just put it right in there. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time about why Jesus did this. Uh, the best answer is that Jesus is doing this to identify with his people. In fact, Mark Andrus, our kids pastor, has written a, a, a blog post that will uh, come out tomorrow or Tuesday on our website. And we'll explain kind of more in depth an answer to this. Why did Jesus need to be baptized? But the simplest reason is that when we're baptized, we get baptized in the water to identify with Jesus. And Jesus got baptized to identify with us. Saying, listen, if I'm going to be the Savior that represents sinful humanity, then in this symbolic gesture, I'm going to go into the water just like all these sinners. And I'm going to identify with them and I'm going to come out. That's the best explanation for it. You can read more online if you want to uh, get an even, even better explanation. But that's, that's what I give for right now. Second thing you need to see in this passage is that the Father, Son, and Spirit are all present. You know, sometimes people will point out that there's no, uh, the, the word Trinity does not appear in the Bible anywhere. I don't know if you knew that. The word Trinity doesn't show up. But there are a number of places in the Scripture where Father, Son, and Holy Spirit appear all together. This is one of them. Do you see it? Jesus is there, the Son of God. He comes up out of the water, verse 10. Immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven You are my beloved son, with you I'm well pleased. Father, son, and spirit. How does that work? Great question. I don't know. Mark clearly didn't know, or he might have taken the time to explain it. But what you need to know is that it's there. It's true. And again, this is an account that wouldn't be there if it was made up. You wouldn't even have this there. So clearly this must have happened. Here's a third thing you need to see. This this is one of my favorite things. This is something I, I noticed for the first time in studying this passage is that the heavens tore open. This is significant. You see this verse 10? And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Now, this word torn open is only used one other place in Mark's gospel. It's used in the place where after Jesus dies on the cross, there's a curtain in the temple. And this curtain blocks off access to the most holy place, to the place where the glory of God itself dwelt. Only the high priest could go there, and only once a year could he have access into this holy of holies. And when Jesus died on the cross, a number of gospel writers, including Mark, points out in chapter 15 that when this happened, the curtain in that temple tore open, In both cases, the baptism of Jesus and the death of Jesus, both of these are is God saying, "You have access to me. Come. It's opened. These things that were secret, these things that were unknown, these things that no one really could tell what it was all about. And people all throughout the, the Old Testament are trying to piece it together. Access is here. It's torn open." Jesus Christ has come. The heavens have torn open. See who he is. Jesus Christ dies. The curtain is torn open. You have access to God. This is powerful. This even right here, Mark is is giving you a clue. He's telling you, listen, access to God is here because of Jesus. Fourth thing you need to see is that Jesus is the Father's beloved Son, Look at verse 11. A voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I'm well pleased. Now it's interesting here. The father doesn't say now you're my beloved son. He says you are my beloved son. This word beloved is the same word that in the Greek Old Testament is used to describe Abraham when he was going to sacrifice his son. And God says stop. Stop because now I know that you're willing to sacrifice your beloved, your one and only son. That's what this word could mean, beloved. It could also mean one and only. Jesus is hearing his, his father saying, you are my beloved son. You're my one and only son. There's no other son of God. There's no other prophet that supersedes Jesus. Jesus is the son of God. And fifth, Jesus is the Son of God, and the Father delights in Him. Do you see this? Verse 11. You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. Something you've got to see here is that the Father delights in Jesus before He accomplished anything. Right, he's going to go on, and He's going to feed thousands, and He's going to heal the blind. He's going to touch lepers. He's going to raise the dead. He's going to pay for the sins of everyone who would ever believe in him on the cross. And he's going to rise again. But it's not after he does all that that the Father says, I'm pleased with you. It's before. And here's the thing. If you're a follower of Christ, if you are in Christ, the same is true for you. God is not looking for you to do a bunch of good things, to do a bunch of good works, before he will tear heaven open, give you access to him, and then say, I'm pleased with you. No, because of Christ, he is pleased with us if we trust Christ. Therefore, we do all that we do not to earn God's approval, but because we already have it. This is so key. You are my beloved son. With you, I'm well pleased. You've heard me, some of you have heard me tell this story before, but I, I remember when Abby, Abby's my eight-year-old, I remember when she was a week or two old, and we had her wrapped on the floor like a big Chipotle burrito, you know, all bundled up. And, and those of you that have kids, you, you know what it's like to have your first kid, and, uh, and you love them more. No, you don't really. But but when they're your first one, they're your only one, right? You have no experience. And people tell you, oh, you're going to love them so much. And I remember my mom always saying, hey, you'll never know how much I loved you until you have a child of your own and that kind of thing. And I remember laying on the floor with Abby. She's bundled up. I remember just laying there next to her. I said, honey, all you do right now is poop and eat and wake up in the middle of the night. But I love you. And there is nothing you could do to make me love you more. There's nothing you could do to make me love you less. You're my daughter, you're my baby girl, and I love you. That's that's the father's voice coming down to his son. Jesus, there's nothing you could do to make me love you more. There's nothing you could do to make me love you less. You are my beloved son. And if you're in Christ, if you're united to Christ by faith, God says those same words to you. So so stop trying to clean yourself up and then come to Jesus. Instead, come to Jesus. Feel the joy of the Father over you and be cleaned up. This is the good news of the gospel to conclude, what, what do we need to see from this? If you're here and would not consider yourself a Christian, we're so glad you're here. I hope that you will continue to come back. I hope you'll see, even just from a passage like this, that Jesus is someone you should pay attention to. As Mark's putting together his documentary, he's saying, listen, this is important. Pay attention. Don't miss what everyone in this story is missing. Pay attention. So I hope you'll come back. I hope you'll keep exploring and reading and discovering who Christ is. What about those of you who are new to the faith? If you're new to the faith, maybe a a good next step from you, as you see in this passage, is to be baptized. John baptized people, not to forgive their sin, but as a symbol of the forgiveness they were experiencing as they turned from their sin and looked to the Savior who was coming. If you've put your faith in Christ, you should get baptized. You know, I don't know if, I I just don't, I don't know if I feel like it. Listen, listen, if it was something Jesus thought he should do and he had no sin? <laughs> you got to come back for that? I, don't, I mean, what's embarrassing to be in front of everybody? Yeah, it was good enough for Jesus. You should do it. What about those of you who are struggling in your faith? What you need to hear is that last verse. You're my beloved son. With you I'm well pleased. God doesn't love you because of the quality of your faith. He loves you because of the object of it. The object of your faith is Christ. And he loves you. What about those of you who are more mature in your faith? You've walked with Christ for a long time. You feel like things are going pretty well. Well, maybe what you need to remember is that no matter how good you're doing, you're still not worthy to tie his sandals. So your life should be filled with humility. With servanthood. Yes, there are bold things that Mark says here about God. He is God. He is the Son of God. Jesus Christ is the one that the Scriptures had pointed to. Jesus Christ is part of this eternal trinity. And yet you hold that humbly because you go, I'm not worthy to tie his shoes. Well, next week, we're going to get to hear from Jesus. If you were watching a documentary about about Jesus' life, you would want to pay attention to the very first thing that Jesus had to say. That's what we'll look at next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we have your delight and approval in Christ. God, what good news? I pray that we would rejoice in it every day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.
0: Amen. Amen.